Well, good morning, church, and thank you for braving the weather and coming on out. Isn't it pretty? God is an awesome God in lots of different ways, but I'm always excited to see uh, when the snow comes down. It's a pretty sight, uh, most definitely. And whether you're here in person or joining us online, man, I want you to know you're part of the family of God. We are in this thing together. We know God is blessing us every single day, and I'm looking forward to how the Spirit is going to lead you and bless you this year, hearing your stories about how God is walking with you, showing you, guiding you along the journey. What an incredible God we serve. Amen, church? I mean, He does incredible things for us, especially through His Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us blessing each and every day. We're in the second week as we talk about Your Kingdom Come, which is our theme for this year. But this whole month, we're unpacking the idea of prayer. As kingdom people, what does prayer look like in our life? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, so I hope you've got your Bibles with you. You'll turn with me there, although our text will be on the screen uh, as well. You know, as we live out this idea of being kingdom people, what does it mean that God's kingdom would come in our lifetime, in our lives, in our community, in our nation, around the world? What would that look like for you and for I, for me? Because we, we want to have God's kingdom come in our life. And we began this series last week talking about the avenue of prayer. We know as Christian people, it is absolutely essential to have a prayer life. We should be in prayer and in the Word of God every single day of our life because it offers guidance, it gives us direction, it calls us how to live, tells us how to live, and we live that out each and every day. But there are also moments in our life where we recognize that there are pivotal, critical moments where we need to be in prayer. And church, right now is one of those moments as we're living through this COVID event and all the ripple effects that have happened because of COVID uh, as we have a new president coming into power in our nation. There are lots of things that we need to be in prayer about for the future, not only of ourselves, our families, but this nation as well. And so I ask you to join our leadership team as we're in the middle of this uh, 30 days of prayer. If you don't have that, you can download it off the website or you can pick up a hard copy at the welcome desk uh, as you leave today. But we're inviting you into prayer with us as a leadership team that you would join us as one voice as we lift our voices to Jesus Christ, asking God the Father to protect us, to take care of us, to guide us and direct us in the days, weeks and months to come. So incredibly important that we find our voice with our Heavenly Father. You know, and one of the things that I did mention last week, God wants to know what's going on in your life. No matter how big or small you think it is, no matter the the worry or the anxiety, the celebration or the victory that you need to talk about, you can bring all of that to God. He wants to know what's going on in your life. He knows you by name. He knows your, your story. And so he wants to communicate with you on your journey. So incredibly important. Last week, we uh, talked about how the world right now is kind of at this crossroads, that so many around the world and in our nation are, are kind of at this point where they have to make a left and right turn, and some of them are looking to the, to the right, and, and they're, they're discovering there's some obstacles to overcome, or they're looking to the left, and there's some obstacles to overcome that direction as well. And while the world is looking left and looking right, church, we are going to look up to our Heavenly Father. Because he's going to provide the safety, the security, the hope that we need as we journey forward in this life. And last week, specifically, we talked about God, our Father. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus doesn't say my father. He says our father. And it's a reminder that we live in the context of community, that we are a family journeying together, and our heavenly father is just that. He is our father. We are his kids. Last week, we discovered that we have this intimate, personal relationship with our God, who's the creator of all the universe, and that he have, we have access to him in this immediate sense, just like a father-child does here on earth. We can trust that our Father has our best interest in mind. And so when we hear this word, our Father, we recognize that we do have a heavenly Father, who loves us more than anything that we could ever think about. You know, many of you came from different faith traditions, uh, and no doubt in your particular faith tradition, maybe you had kind of the way prayer was done. Maybe it was uh, certain points in the service or certain types of prayers you would say at certain times. And of course, I grew up in churches of Christ, and my dad preached at small churches. And I remember as a young boy uh, talking before and after services with other men who were part of that congregation, and they would ask me about football and dating and uh, band practice and those kind of normal things. And we would have a normal dialogue. And then I heard those same guys get up here behind the podium and suddenly their voice would change and they would begin speaking in the King James Version. It was uh, one of those moments where it was clear to them prayer was this formal process, that it was something that needed to move to a different level. And while we recognize that our God is God, He is creator of the universe, He wants us to come to Him in conversation. He is so close to us. He is our intimate Father. In a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of like you being at Walmart in line. How many of you have ever been to Walmart? Raise your hand. Yes, at home too. Go ahead and raise your hand. Everybody in here has been to Walmart. Now imagine for a moment you are at the checkout, you've got your basket full of goods, and you're standing in line, and a total stranger in front of you turns and says, hey, would you mind buying me some peanut M&Ms? And you might go, well, that's kind of an awkward ask, but... You know, I, I am a Christian and haven't done a good deed for the day, so yeah, I can probably splurge and buy you a little bit of candy. There's some kind of, ah, I'm not sure what we should do, but your kid is with you and asks the same question. Dad, can you buy me some Sour Patch Kids? Because we raised our kids right. They would ask for the Sour Patch Kids. And you would immediately say, absolutely, yeah, let's get some Sour Patch Kids and we'll move on our way. Now, you may have to wait to eat them because we're about to go eat dinner, but yes, that's kind of how our Heavenly Father is with us. He's not reluctant. He's not like, eh, well, I, he's like, yes, he is our Father, church, and we can trust him to guide us and direct us. He's already in tomorrow. He knows about who you are, what your name is, what your story is, and he wants to be there with you and for you. And so our text uh, today is Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start from the top, but we're going to focus on the first part of verse 10 today. And Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. We hear that phrase, and, and the first thing that kind of comes to mind is kind of the spiritual realm. I mean, when we hear kingdom of God, we don't think about castles and swords and cavaliers and horses. No, we don't think that way. We automatically jump to thinking spiritual. That's just how we've been trained, because here in America, we don't have kingdoms of such sort. But I want you to go with me some 2,000 years ago 
when Jesus actually preached this sermon. And he's standing in front of a whole bunch of Jewish people as he preaches. Because when Jews hear the words, your kingdom come, it's political. When they hear the phrase, your kingdom come, to them, that's them. They are the nation of God. They are the kingdom of God. So anytime they hear the phrase kingdom of God, they automatically think Israel. This is about us. This is who we are. It's political language. And so Israel and kingdom of God are equal as they look at the the layout. And so when they hear Jesus say, your kingdom come, they're thinking the reestablishment of Israel, the way things used to be, the overthrow of the Roman government. That's what they're thinking. Even the location where Jesus is preaching is a little telltale for the people who are present. You see, Jesus is preaching not in the temple. He's not preaching in Jerusalem, not even some small village. He's preaching on the mountain above the Sea of Galilee. He's out in a wilderness-type area, which history tells us a lot of revolutionaries would hide out, hide out in the mountains around the Sea of Galilee. And so he's in this natural setting where people would take to heart It's time to establish the kingdom of God. They would put that phrase with the idea of liberation and the overthrow of the Roman government. Jesus' listeners at the time would have assumed he was talking about political change. For hundreds of years, Israel was waiting on the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one of God, And their assumption was he was going to be an earthly king. When he came back, he would be riding a horse with a sword drawn. He would ride into the capital city and clear out everything that was not Jewish. That's what they were expecting. And as we think about Jesus' time period, when he lived, we can kind of narrow down four different groups of people that initially wanted Jesus kind of on their side, in their journey, on their page, if you will. Now, It's kind of hard for us to get our head wrapped around, but understand that in Jesus' time, Israel was a theocracy, not a democracy. For the best template I could kind of think of, think of God as the president, the prime minister. He is uh, the guy in charge of the whole state. Everything else falls underneath him. And so anyone in a political position would also be a spiritual leader for Israel. And so you think about it that way, kingdom of God, everything is spiritual for them. It falls into place. And what we find, we can kind of narrow down that there were four political parties that existed during Jesus' time on earth. The first party are the zealots. Now, the zealots are incredibly passionate Jewish people. They wouldn't mind getting Israel back if it meant going to war. They don't mind a little bit of violence. They would be willing to kill a few Romans if it meant they could get their nation back. They're an incredibly passionate group of Jewish people. And in their mind, the Messiah, when he comes back, he's going to be on a horse with his sword drawn, and we're going to go to war. That's who the zealots are. Now, I want you to think about for a moment that one of the 12 apostles was Simon the Zealot. Can you imagine during Jesus' three-year ministry here on earth, the conversations that happened between Simon the Zealot and Jesus? Simon, who's willing to kill some Romans, 
And Jesus who says, hey, we need to love and be accepting. Those are probably some very interesting conversations. A second group were, were the Essenes, and the Essenes were all about withdrawal. They did not care for the Roman occupying force, and frankly, they thought the Jewish culture had really gone bad. And so their idea was just to keep themselves pure. They would move out to the wilderness and withdraw from everything that was going on around them. Today, you can actually go and tour the Essenes area out in the wilderness. It's been ex excavated, and, and you can go check it out. Another group who kind of thought, we want to keep ourselves pure. That's what the Messiah is going to want when he comes back, and we want to be ready when he returns. The third group is a group that we hear most about because it's the one that Jesus really confronts a lot in his ministry. It's the Pharisees. And they thought they could bring about change by legislating it. If we just create enough laws, and if we just make the penalties great enough where people will abide by the laws, then we'll have change. And so they thought that we've got to make sure that Moses' law is followed to the letter. And anyone who breaks Moses' law is going to take on the brunt of the law as their penalty. So they just thought if they could kind of bully their way through, that everybody would kind of follow them and be a part of the process. We know most about them because, again, that's who Jesus kind of confronted in his ministry while he was here on earth. The last group are the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a little softer with the law of Moses. They kind of had this mentality of, we just all need to get along. We don't want the Romans here, but they're here now, and they're the people in power, and so we just need to figure out ways that we can kind of live together and get along. After all, when the Messiah comes, he's going to want to have the quickest avenue to the top seat. And so while we get along with everybody, it's going to create that space for him to do just that. Now, what's interesting is, obviously, Jesus wanted no part of an earthly kingdom, but in John chapter 6, which is the longest uh, chapter in the New Testament, the front end of that chapter is the point where Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And I want to remind you, 5,000 is the number of men there. The reality is there probably was maybe 10 to 12,000 people present when he fed because the women and the kids were not counted. So a young boy comes up with a sack lunch. He's got five loaves and two fish, which Jesus breaks apart after he blesses, and it feeds everybody. As a matter of fact, there was enough left over for 12 basketfuls of leftovers. After the miracle happens, everyone's had their fill. He puts the disciples in a boat and ships them out to the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the mountain to pray. But when he comes down, is, there's this verse that I think that maybe most of us have probably kind of glazed over before, read over before. In chapter 6 of John, verse 15, it says that the people had made a decision to force Jesus to be their king. They're going to force the Son of God to be their king. I mean, this is, this is the Son of God, the creator of all the universe. Colossians tells us that everything was made for Jesus and through Jesus. To be an earthly king would be a demotion for Jesus. I don't think he wants that. Instead, Jesus has a different idea about what kingdom actually means. He's got a different way of living that out. You see, Jesus came to be servant of all. In Jesus' kingdom, it says that the first will be last and the last will be first. That the greatest in God's kingdom is going to be servant and slave of everyone. Jesus has a radical teaching about what kingdom actually looks like. 
And it's tough for us to get our head wrapped around that sometimes because we think your kingdom come. We believe, okay, that's ultimate power. You take a look at the events that happened last Wednesday evening on Capitol Hill. Those are some people who believe a different thing about kingdom. A kingdom is about power and violence and bully. And Jesus says, that doesn't look at all like my kingdom. That's nowhere even close to who I'm calling you to be. I think Jesus voiced it right when he began the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. And he says, God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you and I make a decision to adopt Jesus' lifestyle as kingdom people, Jesus says, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say, blessed are those who have a massive bank account. Blessed are those who have a special title. Blessed are those who have a special nameplate on their office door. It doesn't say any of that. Now, you can have all of those things and still be a kingdom person. God's not, not done with you if, that, if you fall into that category. He can use all of those things for his glory. And you can say, Jesus is king of my life and still have all of those things. When you depend on God, it's incredibly important that you live life like that. But our innate tendency is to believe that kingdom comes through power and force. Philip Yancey, who is a prolific Christian writer and has encouraged me and no doubt many of you along the way in some of his writing, he says this, regardless of the merits of a given political issue, whether pro-life lobby on the right or peace and justice lobby on the left, political movements risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. When Jesus, from Jesus rather, I learn that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility. Otherwise, I betray the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you've got going on in your life, if you're a kingdom person, first and foremost, you've got to be about love and humility. Indeed, God's kingdom is built on the foundation of love and and humility. If you're going to be a person of God, that has to be the premier thing going on in your life, the exhibition of love and humility. So we're challenged as kingdom people to, first of all, hold on to the truth that God gives us in his word, but secondly, be motivated always by love, loving those around us and adopting the will of God in our own life. We are kingdom people, and that means that we're called to love, to serve, and to live humbly. To love, serve, and live humbly. Jesus taught us that the kingdom advances when our hearts and our minds are changed. And I will promise you right now, God's not up in heaven kind of elbowing the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not real sure how this is going to turn out. God knows how things are going to turn out. He is in control. He is in charge. He's already in tomorrow. He's in next year already. God reigns supreme. 
And his kingdom will come not because of politics or vaccines or stimulus checks. His kingdom is going to come because of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that we can have that faith and know that truth to be right. Franklin Delano Roosevelt says, I seriously doubt if there is a problem that will not melt before the fire of a spiritual awakening. So church, we pray for revival. That our hearts and minds would be changed to embrace the kingdom of God. To be different people than the culture around us. That God would awaken us in a hope for a brand new kingdom that God would give each and every one of us every day. You see, we don't put our hope in a government. We put our hope in an all-powerful God. We don't put our, our hope in a new president, but in God as our supreme leader. We don't put our hope in medicine, but in the great physician. And the truth is that God can use any of that to make his will come to fruition. God can and will use those things in our life. But ultimately, we pray for his kingdom to come. And our prayer for that is a commitment also to live out kingdom. We don't just pray, God, we pray that your kingdom come and move on our merry way. No, that prayer is a prayer for us to be changed as well. Jesus knew that. As we think about us being changed for the cause of Christ, we're reminded about what that might look like. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, the Jews had a problem with some of the, the Roman regulations that existed. And so they come to Jesus kind of presenting him the problem. Jesus, we want change. We, we want th this is ridiculous. We need something to be different in our life. I mean, the law says if I'm busy doing something, that if a Roman officer walks up and he wants me to carry his pack, I have to carry his pack a mile. And there were mile markers on the road to post all of that. And so as a Jew, I drop what I do. When the Roman comes up, I carry the pack and I walk the mile, leaving behind what I was working on, getting to the other mile marker, setting it down, going back to what I was working on. And the Jews are saying, Jesus, this is ridiculous. We need something to change. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. We do need something to change. So here's what we're going to do. When the Roman officer comes up, you take his pack, you walk a mile with that pack, and then another mile. You be different. You love unconditionally. You go the extra mile. You don't hold back as a kingdom person. You embrace how God has called us to live. So when we pray your kingdom come, it's a prayer for us to pray for those who might be persecuting you. When we pray your kingdom come, it's a prayer for us to love people who are exhibiting hate toward us. When we pray your kingdom come, it's an opportunity for us to bless those who are reaping curses upon us. We, church, are kingdom people, and that means we live differently than the world around us. The first 300 years of the history of the church, Jesus has ascended to heaven, the church is launched, and then we have the first 300 years. 
The church was nothing and nobody in culture. They had no voice. They had no platform. They had no money. They could not own property. Rome did not recognize them as a legitimate group of people. They were nobodies. But the church exploded. Why? Because they stood in stark contrast to the culture in which they lived. They made a decision to be kingdom people no matter what was happening to them. So our call is to be those kind of people in the culture in which we find ourselves in. That while other people say power, we say love and serve. While other people say force my way, we humbly live beside those around us in our community. When you pray kingdom, then church, we start loving our neighbors, really. When we pray kingdom, we offer peace when it seems like there is no peace to be had. Well, when we pray kingdom, then we offer hope when it seems like the day is hopeless. When we pray kingdom come, we are embracing the idea that Jesus Christ rules our life and our decisions every single day. No matter what's going on around us, no matter who is talking down to you, no matter what people do to you, no matter who is in office, no matter how much is happening in the workplace, we will always shine for Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are kingdom people and we pray for his kingdom to come in our life. And so pray that every day to a heavenly father that is very accessible and has a personal relationship with you. He knows you by name. He knows your story. He knows what's going on in your life. And he wants to be a part of your journey. He says, grab my hand and whatever might happen, you are going to be my child. I will protect you. I will guide you. I will steer you in the right direction. He's already in tomorrow. He knows what's coming. We have nothing to be afraid of, church. And so we embrace his his call for us to be kingdom people. As we sing this next song, maybe there's something going on in your life that you need to be in prayer about. And I want to encourage you. Our shepherds will be through this door and this door. They want to pray for you and over you with whatever is going on in your life. But maybe today is the first of the year, really. You haven't missed out. It's a great opportunity to give your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized into him, come up out of that water, a brand new creation, remission of your sins, full of the Holy Spirit, ready to go be light into the world. That can happen for you today. Don't hesitate. Let's offer a prayer to God and ask him to do that in our life, that we would be kingdom people. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. We are so grateful that we have the avenue of prayer. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come right into your throne room, and we're so thankful for that personal relationship we have with you. God, today we ask that you make us kingdom people, that you wash over us, that you change our hearts and our minds, that we not let the culture around us distract us from being the light you've called us to be. I pray, God, your Holy Spirit would move us and direct us in ways that maybe we've not ever thought about doing before, but ultimately we would embrace your will, your kingdom, and your way. God, thank you for loving us like your children. We honor you and want to honor you every day of our life. It's in Jesus' name we offer this prayer. Amen. Let's stand together now and praise his holy name.